The book of Romans chapter 12 verse 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but always keep your spiritual fervor in the Lord. We've been speaking on this subject over the last several weeks. Today is part number five of this series on rekindling your spiritual fire. We've been talking about being fervent in the Lord. Now, when the Bible talks about being fervent, to keep your spiritual fervor, the word comes from a Greek word that means if it's talking about a liquid getting next to a fire or a source of heat to the point it begins to boil. Or if it's a solid, it gets close enough, it gets heated up, it begins to glow. And the Bible is referring to the spiritual fervor. It's not really talking about so much personality, being outgoing and bubbly and enthusiastic. And, and, and it's really talking about a wholehearted commitment and devotion to the Lord. I mean that I am sold out to Jesus Christ, that I am all in that I'm giving it everything I've got. And so the Bible says, never be lacking in zeal, but always keep your spiritual fervor in the Lord. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we as God's people lose that spiritual fervor. Sometimes we go through times when our hearts are not burning with a love and passion for God and for the work of God. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about some of the reasons for that. Sometimes it's sin in our life. That's often very common that our sin will, will hinder our fellowship with God. And so uh, the Bible says in Matthew 24, because iniquity in the last times, because iniquity or sin will increase, the love of many will grow cold. So that begins to happen. Sin has a dampening effect upon your devotion to Jesus Christ. So we've talked about a number of things over the last several weeks. What I want to talk to you today about is that sometimes it's not sin. Sometimes you've not done anything wrong. Sometimes your spiritual fire begins to go down because you are physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted. Sometimes you're just tired. And if you don't recognize that this is a possibility, then what happens is that you're in the middle of that, and now on top of that, you feel guilty. And you're trying to figure out what's wrong with me, and why am I feeling this way? And, and you know, God, is there, there must be some secret sin or some sin in my life I'm not aware of, or, and we're confused, and we just think, you know, and, and we think something strange and unusual is happening to us. But what I want you to see today, we're going to look at the life of a prophet of God who is one of the most zealous servants of the Lord in the Bible. His name is Elijah. Elijah zealously, wholeheartedly followed the Lord, and yet he went through a time when he was just ready to give up and quit, wanted to die. And it had nothing to do with sin. It was because he was physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. I call that the Elijah syndrome because we all go through it at different times. And in fact, one of the things that I hope will come out of the message today is that you will recognize this is part of being human. It happens to all of us. And in fact, we need to learn to anticipate it 
We need to learn to recognize when those times are probably going to come and be prepared for it. In 1985, our church was located about 25 miles south of here on Midway Road and almost Northwest Highway. At that time, we were called Midway Road Baptist Church. The church had grown some, and we had a, a little a red brick building there. It was a sweet little country church and looking church building, and, but we'd done about all we could do there. We, it wasn't very big. And we didn't have much parking, and we had no land to really expand on. And so in 1985, the church voted to relocate the church. And I started packing my bags because I thought we was going to leave any time. And the truth of the matter is it took 10 years from the time we voted until we finally actually relocated was 10 years now, that wasn't this relocation. This is our second relocation. That was the first one. In 1990, it had been five years, and all during that time, I mean, we were, we were out of space. We were battling space problems, financial problems, all kinds of things. So in 1990, we finally found where we felt like God wanted us to go. We were going to buy an existing building five miles north of us in Farmer's Branch, and it was currently owned by the Valley View Christian Church, but they wanted to relocate north of there. And so we went, talked to them, and we said, we believe this is where God wants us to be. The problem was that we had taken our church building, we had hired a church realtor, we'd put it on the market, and we were wanting to sell it, and we couldn't get a nibble. No one was interested in buying that church building. I mean, we couldn't even get somebody to come look at it. Now, we wanted to buy the Valley View Christian Church, but we had to sell ours first, and we couldn't get anybody to buy it. We couldn't get anybody to even look at it. In addition to that, we owed about $150,000 mortgage on the current building, and to us at that time, it seemed just almost insurmountable to be able to pay something like that off. We, um, we didn't have any money, so for four years, we kept talking to Valley View Christian Church, and they would say, wonderful, uh, whenever you get some money and sell your property, then come talk to us. And for all that time, we kept hitting closed door after closed door. And then in October of 1994, Valley View Christian Church received an offer from another church, cash offer. And we thought they were going to sell that building, that church. After all, we'd been telling them for four years we wanted it, but we had no money. We still had a building we hadn't sold. No buyers, no interest. We still owed 135000 debt. And Valley View's getting ready to sell. And we, I, 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 I was so distraught. I thought, I thought this was it, and now what's going on? And in a matter of a couple of months, starting in October of 1994 to January of 95, about four months, God did one miracle after the other and sold our property, paid off our debt with a Christmas offering. Valley View dropped the price of their building, $400,000. They'd been telling us they wanted to stay there for two years, would have to get an interim location. They changed their mind, said, we want you to take it as soon as you can get it. And God did all of that in four or five months. 
It was just a miracle. It is a story I'd love to tell you today, but that's another message. Amazing thing God did. So in January of 1995, we packed everything up and we stored it and then we moved the church into a hotel for nine weeks. And then the last Sunday of March, 1996, I'm sorry, 1996, we had our first service in the new home of our church. What an amazing victory. It had taken 10 years. And once we got in there, I thought, well, boy, this is what we've been waiting for, and now everything is just going to take off. But instead, it's like the entire church just went, and just sat down. And the spiritual fervor and energy of the church just flatlined. Everyone was so tired and so exhausted from this spiritual battle, from the physical setting up and tearing down in the hotel to the moving of everything and getting it set up and the deadlines and the money and, the, and all that had to go on. And when it finally came true, everybody just was exhausted. And I didn't know what had happened. At the very moment, I'm expecting the church to just really begin to get momentum and begin to grow. We just sat down. But what I've learned is that that should have been very predictable. In fact, it is so predictable that when we got ready to relocate again in 2012, and we relocated up here to McKinney, 25 miles north, and we moved into a shopping center right down the road a mile and a half from here, and when we were in the shopping center for almost five years, and we got ready to move into this new building, it had been a process of about six years. But at that point, because of what we'd been through before, we anticipated what might happen. We prepared for it. We organized for it. And when we got into the new building this time, it didn't happen because it was predictable and we were expecting it and we prepared for it. That's what I would love for you to come out of this message with today is that you are a human being. And we as human beings sometimes you know, we think if I just pray enough that it will overcome a lack of sleep. And it will for a short period of time. But sometimes it just catches up with you. And sometimes your spiritual fire will begin to diminish because you are just physically, spiritually, mentally tired. Now that's what happened to Elijah. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Lord, on fire for God, totally devoted, fervent in his commitment to God. But we're, we first hear about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. He boldly walks into King Ahab's presence. Ahab was, Israel at that point was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was one of the most wicked kings they had ever had. The nation had turned to idolatry. They were worshiping Baal, and they were worshiping Asherah, and they had 
hundreds and hundreds of prophets. And so Ahab, uh, Elijah walks into Ahab's presence and says, it's not going to rain around here again until I say so, and turns and walks out. Well, it's not very long, and because it's not raining, Ahab begins to remember what was said, and he starts sending out search parties looking for Elijah. See, God's hidden Elijah. He told him to go down to the brook Kareth, which is on the east side of Jordan, and he said, stay there at this brook in obscurity, and he says, I will feed you with the ravens every morning and every evening, and God, for a while, fed him miraculously. He's out there in the wilderness with no food, and God miraculously provided for him with the ravens. After a while, the brook dried up because there's a drought in the land. And then God said to him, I want you to go up to the kingdom or the nation north of Israel in Sidon to a village called Seraphath, and there's a widow up there that I've directed to take care of you. Elijah gets up there. The little widow has got just enough oil and flour to make a little cake She's going to eat her last meal with her son, and then they are going to die. When Elijah gets there, God had told him he was going to provide for him through that lady. And so for now years, Elijah stays there, and that little bit of flour and oil never ran out. And God miraculously provided every day over and over again. Now, three and a half years have gone by. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings happens, and God says to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. I'm going to bring the rain. And he tells him to call the nation to a showdown on Mount Carmel and invite the prophets of Baal and Asherah to come and call out to their God, and that Elijah was to call out to his God, and the God who sent fire on the altar of the sacrifices, let him be God in Israel. So that's what happened. We have the showdown on Mount Carmel. It is Elijah against 450 prophets of Baal. It is Elijah against this backslidden people. It is Elijah standing there with the king who's been trying to kill him for three and a half years. And all that army. And he boldly stands before the Lord. And when the prophets of Baal had been crying out to their idol all day long and nothing had happened... Finally, Elijah steps up the evening sacrifice time, and he prays a very simple prayer. God, so that they will know that you're God in Israel and that I have done this, all of this, because you told me to, let the fire fall. Hear me, O God, answer me, so they will know that you are God. And the fire fell, consumed the bull, the wood, the stones, licked up the water that was in the trench they had poured over the sacrifices, even the dust in the trench. And the Bible says the people fell on their face and said, Yahweh is God. Not Baal, Yahweh is God. Then Elijah and the people take the 450 prophets of Baal and they take them down to the the river that was next to them and they kill them. It's pretty traumatic. Then Elijah says to Ahab, it's about to rain. Get in your chariot and get out of here. I hear the sound of abundance of rain. And Elijah's been praying, and now the drought is broken, and it comes a torrential rain. 
And the Bible says that Elijah pulls up his cloak, tucks it in his belt, and starts running in front of the chariot. Now, it's almost 20 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, where Ahab was going, where his palace is. And that it's going right down the valley of Jezreel, which is the valley of Armageddon. And they're going almost 20 miles. I get this mental picture. Ahab is, he's, it's this driving rain, and they've got the horses, and he's whipping the horses and riding, trying to get out of this rain. And I imagine you could just, man, the sheets of rain coming. First time it's rained in three and a half years. The wind and the rain is blowing, and just every now and then he'd catch a glimpse of this guy running out in front of the chariot, long hair flying in the wind. That's Elijah running. They get to Jezreel. It's where the palace was. And picking up in chapter 19, where I want to look at today. Now Ahab told Queen Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over some hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and he lay back down and he fell back asleep again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled another 40 days and nights until he reached Horab or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous. See that word? Zeal. I've been very zealous. This guy had the spiritual fire for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, or still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, identical. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenants. They've torn down your altars. They've put the prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. 
The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, over the king of, as king over Israel, the northern tribes, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel Menholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That's a long passage, but we've summed up three chapters now. Elijah goes from this absolutely miraculous moment of the fire falling out of heaven. The, this incredible victory that he's been praying for, he's been working for for years, and now three and a half years have gone by. He's, the whole purpose of that was so that Israel would repent and turn back to God. And now the nation falls on their face and says, Yahweh is God. It's this just magnificent moment. And by the next day, Elijah has run for his life, and he's just saying, I want to die. I've had enough. He goes from literally a mountaintop to just basically out in the wilderness, ready, wanting to die. How is that possible? How is it possible to be so fervent and zealous for the Lord that you're willing to stand alone in the face of opposition like that, and yet, and the next day, one person can say something to him, and he just, he can't handle it anymore, and he just takes off running. I mean, Elijah had gone from living his life out of faith to now he's operating out of fear. He was afraid, and he ran for his life. He had gone from this mountaintop experience to just the bottom in the moment, minute, matter of hours. How is that possible? He lost his perspective. He thinks I'm the only one left. God tells him later on, that's not true. There's still 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Obadiah had just told him the day before that there was over 100 prophets that Obadiah himself had saved and fed all during that time. Elijah wasn't the only one left, but he'd lost his perspective. He's discouraged. He's depressed. He doesn't want to eat. He's tired. He just wants to give up and quit. And the reason is because he was physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. I mean, think about it. For three and a half years, he didn't know where his next meal was coming from, except God's going to have to miraculously provide it every day. For three and a half years, there's a drought in the land. People are suffering. He's seeing this suffering, and he knows it's because he prayed for it. For three and a half years, every moment of every day, Ahab is looking for him, trying to kill him. His life is in danger. There's a bounty on his head. They got search parties out looking for him everywhere. 
And now finally, after three and a half years, God tells him to appear before Ahab, and he has to go and appear before the one who's been trying to kill him for three and a half years. He gets there in the face. He's all alone on the top of this mountain with 450 prophets of Baal, all the people who are backslidden, who don't trust God anymore. Ahab with his army sitting there who've been trying to kill him, and he's by himself. And all by himself, by faith, he trusts God, and the fire falls, and the tide turns, and now there's this amazing victory. Now there's this amazing goal has been accomplished, and he, he has fulfilled that which he had been working so hard for for several years. Then he prays for rain, and the drought is broken, and a torrential rain comes. Then he runs a marathon out in front of the chariot, physically, runs for almost 20 miles. Not, not with a pace. He's running in front of that chariot supernaturally. And now he is, he's, he's had this extreme expenditure of emotional energy. He's killed 450 people. By him, help. He's out there with a sword actually taking somebody's life who's been a false prophet. Emotionally traumatic and draining. And now the next day, Jezebel hears about what happens, and I think he was expecting that Ahab and Jezebel would repent. I mean, there's not any doubt who's really God here, right? The fire's fallen. Baal's been, prophets have been killed because Baal didn't answer. They had all day long, and he didn't answer, and God answered, and the people all know. So I think he had this expectation that Ahab and Jezebel would turn, they would repent, and maybe lead reform in the nation and revival would take place. But instead, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. So what's new? This has been going on for three and a half years. But all of a sudden, he can't take it. All of a sudden, he's afraid. Instead of operating by faith and trusting God who's been taking care of him for three and a half years, he's now afraid, and he runs for his life. And he goes from Jezreel, which is in the northern part of the nation, to Beersheba, which is over 100 miles south. He is fleeing. He leaves the country because he's no longer in the northern ten tribes. He's now in Judah, the southern uh, country. He's in Beersheba, and there he leaves his servant, and now he's all alone. And he goes another day's journey out into the wilderness. And that's where he gets under this broom bush, and he just says, enough. I can't do, any, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I just want to die. He's really depressed. He makes his way after the angel of the Lord wakes him up a couple of times. He makes his way another almost 200 miles to Mount Sinai. Takes him 40 days and nights to get there. Now, if you do a little bit of arithmetic, 40 days going 200 miles is about five miles a day. That is not a really fast pace. And so I just sort of imagine he's depressed. He's just walking along the road, kicking rocks and you know, just aim, laying down, sleeping, getting up, making a little bit of progress. It takes him 40 days. 
And he just gets there and he's lost his total perspective. He thinks he's the only one left. And Lodge's problem was he's physically exhausted. God even said the journey's too much for you. You are a human being. Now sometimes if we're not careful, we will think that we can push beyond the limits of our physical strength because we think we're doing something for God and so it'll be okay and God will help you for a while but at some point you're going to crash and burn. And that is why that in, even in the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember that? And it says God did that because in six days God created the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, God did what? He rested, right? Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. But he also rested as an example and a pattern for you and me. But some people, some of us, we don't ever rest anymore. It's been a rough couple of years that we've all gone through. We've all lived through a worldwide pandemic where basically the entire world shut down and we were told by the, every media outlet, by every newspaper article, by every radio, by everything, government official, they're all going, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And everybody you love is going to die. And it was just bombarded with that. And there was stress and we were isolated from people and we were, we were fearful and we didn't know what the truth was. And then you add to that, we had this incredibly divisive political climate in the country and we had this election and there was anger and there was division. Even families divided over this. There was racial tension in the country. There's... Then you add to all of that that we've got all the news media figures out that the only way you can get anybody's attention is just that the headline's got to be alarming. And now every news article, every lead of every story in the news, every social media post, it's just all end of the world. You're all going to die. It's, you know, and it's, it's just alarm, 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 anger. You know, social media is just brutal stress. Then we got wars going on in the world. And now every day there's newspaper articles going, got to watch out. It's going to be a nuclear attack. Got to watch out. The, the nuclear, nuclear reactor is going to melt down. Gotta, you know, the end of the world's coming. The tribulation's here. Antichrist is on the scene. On and on and on. Add to that, we've got inflation. Our economy's going into a recession. The future is uncertain. And we have been through a lot of emotional, physical stress. And a lot of people are just exhausted emotionally, mentally, physically. And you can only push it for so long, and at some point, you will crash. So God says, you and I need to learn to rest. We need to build this routines in our life of recognizing you can't just keep doing this and keep pushing on ahead and keep burning the candle at both ends and keep adding to the schedule and keep go, 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 you, you won't, you're not going to make it. And some of you today, some watching right now, your spiritual fervor in the Lord is waning 
and you've been beating yourself up going, you know, I don't know of any sin in my life. I don't know what's going on, but I just, I just don't have anything to give anymore, and I don't know what's wrong with me. And maybe you're just tired and exhausted. You need to be able to predict these things. When Elijah had this great victory on Mount Carmel, he, it's pretty predictable that he's going to have this crash that's going to come on the other side of it emotionally. This great victory and expenditure of energy is followed by a letdown. I've discovered that that's very predictable. I've discovered many, many years ago, it took me a while, I discovered many years ago that I should never make a really important decision on Mondays because after Sunday, I've had this expenditure of energy and oftentimes there's a real temptation to be discouraged, to feel like, oh, well, that didn't do any good. Nobody's listening. Nobody cares. I'm all alone. Only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. <laughs> Tend to feel that every Monday. I began to learn that that's got, it really had nothing to do with being spiritual. It had to do with, I'm tired. Some of you are right now, you're tired. You've gone through crisis in your family. You've gone through health crisis. You've gone through other things in life, and you're tired. Maybe you've been disappointed. Sometimes when you're disappointed, you have this letdown. Elijah full well thought that Ahab and Jezebel, I think he expected that when, I mean, who's, who can deny this fire falls out of heaven? This is God has done this. Surely they're going to repent. And how shocked he was when Jezebel, in spite of hearing everything that had happened, Jezebel goes, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. And he just instantly thought, all of it was for nothing. All of these years, all I've been through, I didn't do any good. And he's disappointed and he crashes emotionally. Sometimes when you're standing alone and you're you're facing great opposition or great hardship like he was doing, sometimes that's just a lot of emotional physical, mental ex, expense, uh, expenditure of energy. And at some point, you just let down. So what happens? Well, Elijah gets down to Mount Sinai. He's now over 300 miles from Jezreel, probably. And it's interesting that along the way, God had fed him and just let him sleep because he needed the rest. He said, the journey's too much for you, and he just let him rest. And so what I want you to say, I want to give you a couple of practical things that when you go through these times, and I want to tell you, if you're going through it today, I hope this will help you, but even if you're not going through this today, you need to learn to recognize this happens in all of our lives. We're human beings. Predict it. Anticipate it. Prepare for it. Build into your lives routines of rest. You need to not violate at least one day a week that you stop, you take 
a day of rest to do something. You change the routine, and you, you've got to do that. You keep violating that. At some point, it's going to catch up with you. I remember many years ago, there was a young man in our church. He was a theological student, and he was on fire for Jesus. He was so devoted for God. He witnessed to people all the time. He's down to going to school, taking a full load, and then he would go to school in the mornings. He would do his homework in the afternoons, and then uh, he'd take a couple-hour nap in the afternoons, and then he would go to work, and he was a security guard at night, and he would stay up all night long until it was time to go to school the next morning, and then he'd go back to school, repeat. He was living on about two, three hours of sleep. And I remember talking to him and saying, that's not sustainable. And he was so zealous for God, so on fire for God. He, he said, oh, man, you know, God's helping me, and, and I love it, and there's no problem. And I study at night when I'm at work. It's great, whatever. Very predictably. I don't remember how long it took now, but one day I looked at that guy, and the fire was gone. The energy was gone. He was discouraged. His faith was wavering. He was now hurt angry, disappointed, and we nearly lost him. And the problem was he just violated this principle. You can't do that. You're a human being. Even Jesus Christ got tired. How many times Jesus would be with a crowd and then he would say to the disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side. And he would fall asleep in the boat on the way. And you know why he got in the boat? Because it's the only way he could get away from the crowds. And they'd get in the boat and they'd cross to the other side and there would be a few hours of peacefulness out there on that sea. And he would sleep, even in the middle of storms sometimes. He'd be so tired. So sometimes you just need to rest. I remember many years ago, there was we were doing our church was having the first capital stewardship campaign we'd ever done since I had been the pastor. First one I'd ever done. And we had this guy come in to help us. I really liked him. And he was telling me that when he was a young man, that he had the privilege of meeting with a guy who was a world-renowned revivalist whose name was Dr. Leonard Ravenhill. Some of you may have heard of him. Dr. Ravenhill was just well-known, you know, man of God and just, you know, just an old, like an Old Testament prophet kind of guy. So this guy was telling me, he said, man, he said, Dr. Ravenhill li- lived in Lindale, Texas, outside of uh, Tyler, and he said, uh, I got an appointment one day to get to see him. He said, I'm a young guy. Man, this is an incredible opportunity. I'm so excited to just sit at the feet of this man and just ask him questions. He said, so the day came. He said, I finally get ushered in. I sit at a table, and I'm sitting there waiting. And in a few minutes, Dr. Ravenhill opens the door. He walks in, sits down, and he said, I'm so nervous. And I looked at him and said, man, Dr. Ravenhill, I'm honored to get to talk to you. Um, you know, I, I just, I'm just starting out in ministry, and you've been, God's used you in such a great way. I just wanted to pick your brain and just what advice would you have for a young man like me? And he said, Leonard Ravenhill looked at him and said, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. He said, speaking of which, I'm tired. I'm going to go take a nap. And he stood up and walked out and left. 
Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you need to rest. Jesus in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has just gotten word that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been killed. He's grieving that. He had sent his apostles on a mission trip, and they've been out there preaching every day, healing the sick, raising the dead. Now they've come back to report back in. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Now, if you read on to the story, people saw where they were going, ran around the edge of the lake, and when they get there, there's thousands of people waiting on them, and that's what he feeds the 5,000. So it didn't work, but he tried. But I want you to just, that verse, Jesus says to them, come away by yourself with me to a quiet place and get some rest. That is a word from God to somebody today. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ saying to you today, come away with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Some of us here need to withdraw from the rat race. We need to just back up a little bit. We need to reset. We need to regroup. I don't know how to tell you to do it. But you need to hear the Lord saying to you, come away with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. Sometimes that is what is required for the spiritual fervor to be restored in your life. So anticipate that we're being human when we have these great highs, it's going to be followed by a low. When there's great expenditure of energy, we're going to have some letdown times. That's just being human. Come away and get some rest. Build rest into your lives once a week. Take an annual vacation. Sometimes take extended times away. You need to work with God on this so you don't lose your spiritual fervor. Third of all, you need to hear from the Lord. Elijah had gone to Mount Sinai. And why did he go to Sinai? Well, I think it's because that's where Moses had encountered God at the burning bush. And Elijah's thinking, I need, I need something dramatic for God to do here. When Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, they had made their way to Mount Sinai, and it was there that God gave them the Ten Commandments. And while he's doing that, you remember the presence of God came down on the mountain, the mountain's on fire, and the mountain is shaking, and God's presence is there, and it is this absolutely intimidating, terrifying experience. It was spectacular. And I think Elijah was thinking to himself, I am so down. I am so disappointed. I am so tired. I am so alone. I am so discouraged that God's going to have to do something spectacular to pull me out of this. So he gets there to Sinai, and the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God didn't ask him that because God 
was confused. God never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer, right? He already knows. But he said to Elijah, what are you doing here? Because he wanted Elijah to articulate and tell him what he was thinking and feeling. And so Elijah says, the nation of Israel has turned from your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So then the Lord said, come out. The presence of the Lord is about to come by. And then there was this wind. It must be pretty powerful for wind to break rocks. I don't even know how that happens. But that is some really powerful wind. And then the Bible says God wasn't in the wind. The presence of God was not in that spectacular windstorm. And then there was an earthquake, and the mountain shook just like it had shaken the day the Ten Ten Commandments were given. But God was not in that spectacular earthquake. And then the mountain was on fire like it was when the Ten Commandments were given, but God wasn't in the fire. And then there was a still, small voice. See, it doesn't take a spectacular manifestation from God to renew this fire and this fervency in your heart. You just need to hear from him. You just need to hear Jesus say, come away with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest and let Jesus speak to you. Because when he speaks to you, You will regain your perspective. Elijah Elijah was confused. He's thinking all this was for nothing. Didn't matter. No good came from it. There's nobody left. I'm the only one left that are trying to kill me too. What's the use? I might as well die. And God said to him, that's not true. I still got 7,000 people in the nation who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. There's still a hundred prophets. There's going to be, I want you to go now, and I want you to anoint the prophet who's going to come after you. My work in this nation's not over. Long after you're gone, Elijah, I'm going to still be working. I want you to appoint the next kings and Aram and the king in Israel, and they're going to bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. They're not getting away with this. They're going to bring judgment on them, and, they're, and none of them, none of their family's going to escape. So God speaks to him in this still, small voice and helps him regain his perspective, gives him a new assignment, says, I'm not finished with you yet. You have a new assignment now. It's going to be different. For the last three and a half years, you've been hiding. For the last three and a half years, I've been providing for you. You've been praying for drought, now rain. Now it's going to be different. I've got a new assignment for you. And so my encouragement to you today, if you're tired, if your spiritual fervor is not what it ought to be and you're exhausted, you just don't have it to give, it may not be because your heart's strayed from God. It may not be because you're backslidden. It just might be you're exhausted. And the result or the the cure for that is come away by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest 
and let Jesus speak to you. It can be a still, small voice. Give you a new mission, a new assignment. Help you regain your perspective. And that fire and that fervency will come back again. I want you to bow your heads. I just want you to take a minute. There's some of you here today, this is exactly what you needed to hear. There's others of you that that's not where you are right now. You may have been there in the past, but I'm telling you, everyone here, everyone watching right now, you're going to go through these times because we're just human. So anticipate it. Prepare for it. Get alone with God and rest. Sometimes you just need to rest. Let God speak to you. Be honest with God. Tell Him what you're really feeling. And let God minister to you. Perhaps someone watching right now or someone in this room, you, you don't know if you have a relationship with God or not. You, maybe you believe in God. Obviously, you're interested in God or you wouldn't be here today. And for, you're here for some reason. But the Bible says there's only one way to have a relationship with God. I mean, to really know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you might know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is being connected to God, and eternal death is being separated from God, cut off from the life of God. And the Bible says that our sin, and we've all sinned, the Bible says our sin cuts us off from God creates a separation, a barrier between us and God. And there's nothing you and I can do to remove that barrier. But God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to remove the barrier. And the way Jesus did that was he died on the cross and God took your sin that created that barrier between you and God and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus and Jesus paid for your sin by his own death and his own sacrifice. On the third day, God raised him from the dead and when he raised him from the dead, it was God's proclamation that he had accepted the payment that everything necessary to pay for your sin had been paid for and now through Jesus and Jesus alone, you can have a relationship with God, eternal life. Have you ever asked Jesus to save you from your sins? Have you ever trusted him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you would trust him enough today that you would cry out to him and ask him to save you, 
instantaneously that barrier between you and God would be removed. Instantaneously, you would get connected to God and receive eternal life. You'd get a brand new start in life. You would become a child of God and so much more. And it's all yours. It's offered to you as a gift today by God, free. But you have to trust Jesus. You have to ask him. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved right now. Are you ready to call? If that's what you want, then just tell Jesus that. Just pray something like this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you. And my sins have created a barrier between me and God. And there's nothing I can do to remove that barrier. But I believe you died in my place on the cross. I believe you paid for my sin to remove that barrier. And I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. So I'm asking you now, come into my life and save me from my sin. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. Make me your child. Give me a relationship with God. And from this day forward, with your help, I will follow you. If you prayed that prayer or something like it and you meant it, then I want to welcome you to the family of God. You've just got a brand new start in life. You've just had your sins wiped away. Eternal life is yours. You've become a child of God and so much more. And now that you've become a brand new person, born into God's family, what do you do next? Well, that's the purpose of a church is to help you know what to do next. That's why we exist. And so we would love to help you in this new relationship you have with God. So if you just prayed that prayer with me, would you take the gray card in the seat back in front of you, put your name on there and a number, and just check the box that says, I prayed today to ask Jesus to save me from my sins. And as you make your way out in just a moment, drop that card in the offering boxes that are on either side of the door on your way out. Maybe you need to be baptized. We're going to actually baptize next Sunday morning. And so we have a number of people being baptized. And maybe you've never been baptized since you gave your life to Jesus. And that's one of the first commands Jesus gives us. So if you've never done that, then that's hindering you in your walk with God. But you have an opportunity that you could settle that this week. So by this time next week, that could be taken care of. So if that's you, then take the gray card in the seat back in front of you. Check on there. I want to be baptized. Drop it in the offering box, and we'll contact you this week. Help you get ready for that. Maybe you'd like to join the church. Just check the box. I want to pursue membership of the church. Drop it in their box. We'll contact you this week. One final thing. If you're our guest here today, I just want to tell you thank you for coming. I hope when you came in today, I hope you felt welcomed. I hope you felt this is a genuine just real group of people who love the Lord. I hope, you, I hope you sense the Lord's presence here. I hope that God spoke to you through his word. If that's the case, you can encourage us 
by taking the blue card and seat back in front of you. Just put your name on there, contact information, drop it in the box. And I promise we won't hassle you. We're not going to bug you. We just want to connect with you briefly and just say thank you for coming. So God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Let's all stand together. My Father, I pray for your people. Some here today are so tired. They've just been hanging on. And you had a word for them today, and I pray that they've been encouraged. And I pray that they would go away with you and rest and hear from you and let you spiritually recharge their life and give them new direction. I praise you, O oh God, for your truth, for your word. You're an amazing God, a wonderful God. We love you, and I pray that your people today would walk out of here loving you more than when they came in here. And may we honor you this week through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. God bless you.